Well, everybody is wondering where I'm from. Uh, I am thrilled uh, at the opportunity <clears throat> to come out and be a part. Uh, when I was with the, uh, I, I'd just gotten out of the Marine Corps, and my wife and I were invited back to Colorado Springs to get some training with the navigators before we launched our career. <clears throat> I went back there and went to work for Aircraft Mechanics Incorporated, and uh, pretty decent job, and ministered at the Air Force Academy. And I was assigned the ministry out there. Went out there almost every evening and most weekends. <clears throat> After about six months, Leroy, uh, Leroy Imes, who was the, uh, the uh, regional director there, he asked me if I would quit my job and give my time full-time to the cadets at the academy. Well, I'd never done anything like that. And so, but we prayed about it, my wife and I did, and we decided to do that, and we went full-time with the NAV ministry and ministered at the Air Force Academy. <clears throat> uh, I always told the cadets there at the academy that if you, uh, if you can't get into the military, you can always join the Air Force. <laughs> so, but we had, we had some great times. But Leroy asked me one day, he said, would you go to Los Angeles and survey all the college campuses in, Lo in, in the Los Angeles area? So I said, okay, uh, how do you do that? And he said, I don't know, I've never done it, figure it out. <laughs> and that was one of Leroy's methods of training his men was dump the, give them the job and make them wrestle with how you get it done. And in the process, it will develop them. So I came to L.A. and I lived with uh, Joyce and Elvin Smith in Pasadena, got out a big map of the L.A. area, and I, began to, and I, went on, I was on 26 college campuses that week. And I listed them. From the, uh, the best down to the, uh, the least desire. I, I listed the top seven. And uh, I, I, uh, the best one I thought was at Cal Poly Pomona, but we had a guy out there. And the second one was UCAL, University of California, Irvine. I liked the fact that they had about 15 dorms with about 60 people in each dorm. What a great opportunity. Number three was USC. Sorry about that. <laughs> but... but <clears throat> I've, uh, I was impressed with the student body, the caliber of student that was at USC. I thought they were, uh, they were more doers than they were philosophers. They were more uh, kind of the engineering men mentality than they were the philosophical mentality. And as I talked to students on the campus and I walked around and I looked at the dorm situations and the administration, I thought, this is a great campus. We, ne we need to be here. We need to be on this campus. Great campus. So Neil beat us to it. And, uh, but it, it was a good choice. It was a good choice. I, uh, let me tell you where I'm coming from. Uh, I grew up in a home that we didn't go to church. My dad was very antagonistic toward anything Christian. My mom was a believer. Uh, I didn't really know that. At, I didn't know what the terms were. I didn't know what, you know, Christian believer, I didn't know what those things were. But I think my mom was a believer and tried to, uh, to follow the Lord, but got zero encouragement. Uh, we never went to church. I didn't, I didn't own a Bible. When I was 17, my, uh, I was sitting at the dining room table reading a book. My mom came through one February. This is February 
And back in, uh, this was in North Louisiana, it was very cold, it was rainy, it was dark, just a miserable, miserable evening. And our church, the church where my mom attended, was having a revival, whatever on earth that is. And I didn't know, but she was going to go to this revival. And so she, as she went through, came through the kitchen, she paused and she said, would, I'm going to church, would you like to go with me? And I just, you know, you feel sorry for your mom. Good night. You know, here's somebody trying to do right and trying to, you know, and, and she's getting no help and she's going out in the dark by herself. Good night. So, I, yeah, I'll go with you. So I went and grabbed my jacket and I went with her. First time in my life that I'd ever listened to a pastor and, and tracked him. I, I followed with him. I understood him. First time in my life. The few times that I'd been in church before, it was an absolute waste. Most boring thing I'd ever done. But uh, there was a fellow there that night named David. David was the catcher on the baseball team. I was one of the pitchers. So David and I knew, I knew David real well. And something had happened to David the year before, the summer before. This was, I was a junior, and something happened. And I had no idea what it was, but I knew it had something to do with religious because he, came, he became a very good guy. I mean, his language changed, his goals changed, his values changed. He just became a very good guy, and I knew it. I, was, I, I played basketball with him, played baseball with him, knew him real well. David was there, and he saw me. So, you know, as a, here's a hot one, and so he comes over to me and says, you know, w would you come tomorrow night? I'll come by and pick you up. Would you, uh, would you come to church with us tomorrow night? So he and another fellow named Pat came by and picked me up. I wound up going to church every night that week. I, I went more that, night, that week than I'd been in my life. But uh, by Wednesday night, I knew that if there was a God in heaven, I was in serious trouble. Because I, uh, I worked with, my dad had a construction company, and I worked with construction crews every Saturday and all summers. And the three things about it, most of them had a very hot temper. Most of them cussed just like crazy. And spoke nothing more of, uh, spoke of nothing more than chasing wild women, the wilder the better. And so I grew up thinking, now that's what a real man does. Most of these men were very good operators. They were very skilled at their position, very admirable, and I admired them. But my life became like their life, filthy. So I'm sitting in church thinking about all this. Well, the next week, I'm, we're playing baseball, and I threw batting practice for a while. Then I went out in center field, and I'm sitting out there thinking about all these things that I'd heard. And I've always been somewhat analytical, and so I thought to myself, Chuck, are you a, are you a, a, a Christian? And so I thought, well, check this out. I'm not a Buddhist, uh, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a Muslim, I must be a Christian. And I thought, yeah, but Chuck, your life, your, your, your language, your thoughts, your, goal, your direction, I mean, you're like a person who's never even heard of God. And I thought, wow. So then I thought, well, you know, why don't, why don't you become a Christian, like David? Uh, wow, I don't, you know, because David is always under the microscope. You know, if you walk with God, you are always under the microscope. And so was David. And I didn't have very many friends, and I didn't want to lose what few I had, but I thought, man, I don't know if I want to do that tonight. And I think about that time I caught a fly ball, and I threw it back in, and I looked up in the clouds, and I thought, you know, if there's a God up there, if there is a God in heaven, I'd rather be him, him be pleased with me than what people think of me. And so I prayed. Never prayed in my life. Didn't close my eyes. But I said something very, very close to this. I said, God, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I don't even know what one is. 
But if I have never given you the complete control of my life, I want to do that right now. And I can't tell you why, but I knew God took me up on that deal. He heard that. And I remember turning around and looking at the center field fence right behind me there. And it's probably 12, 14 feet high. And I had this sensation that I could jump that fence. And I don't know why. I just felt clean. I just felt renewed. Something had happened. You know, the next day I quit cussing. And I can't tell you how filthy my mouth was. I said words that embarrassed myself. And I quit. In fact, I said five cuss words the next day. And I counted every one of them and was so embarrassed and ashamed. And the day before, I had said hundreds. Never bothered me. But something had changed. Somebody went down inside me and, you know, kind of turned all the gears around. Started going to church. But, you know, the thing that we had a great youth group. And maybe you're involved in this. You know, it was a good group. Everybody loved each other. And they were sweet and nice and warm and fuzzy and, and, and encouraging. And, but nobody was in the Bible. I didn't know what a Bible study was. And I went to church for four years. I never knew what a Bible study was. Nobody ever mentioned to me about memorizing God's Word. Never heard of that. Quiet time? Never. What are you talking about? Never heard of that in four years. I even went to a Baptist school because I graduated. I really wanted my life to count for God. I wanted God to be, to be able to use me significantly. I wanted God to, to, to use me and, and to bring glory to Himself. And so, man, I, I went to church every time it was, the door was open. I went to a Baptist school. I thought, no, man, I'll really get some help there. But it, uh, it was the same thing. A lot of good, warm, wonderful people. But nobody taught me and trained me and helped me. So I'm out at Glorietta, New Mexico. It's a Baptist camp. I'm out there for student week. And so I really want my life to count for God. And so I think, well, how do you do that? Well, I knew the pecking order. I mean, if you're really serious about God, you're a missionary. And if, and if you, the second, second echelon of commitment is being a pastor. And the third echelon is probably, uh, you know, an educational director. And then you finally get down to maybe a youth director and but I, so I thought, well, you know, I really want to serve God. I'm going to volunteer for missions. And so I did. So one night I go down to the front and I say, I want to be a missionary. And the guy says, well, what kind of missionary do you want to be? <laughs> I said, you mean there's different kinds? <laughs> the new one on me? So anyway, he said, yeah, there's all kinds. There's church planters and there's uh, pastors and there's teachers and hospital people and nurses and doctors. And he said, there's agricultural missionary. I said, whoa, what does that guy do? He said, well, he works with their crops and uh, their livestock, and he helps them to, in those areas and wins a hearing for the gospel. I said, that's it. That's what I want to be. We had a farm. I worked cattle, worked horses, road-cutting horses. And, I mean, I, I farmed, cut hay, and did all that stuff. I, uh, that's what I want to be. So he said, well, does your college have a good ag school? I said, my college doesn't even, doesn't even have an ag school. He said, well, you need to transfer it to a good ag school. I said, great. Where is one? And he said, well, you're part of the world, probably Texas A&M. I said, okay. So I transferred. I didn't even know where it was. I, obviously, it was in Texas. <laughs> but I had no idea where it was. So I transferred to Texas A&M. 8,000 men, no women. <laughs> Military school. I mean, Corps cadets, mandatory. A&M produced more officers for the United States Army than West Point did. It was huge. And so I get over there, and guess what? My little shallow Christian life got exposed. 
I couldn't help anybody. I was very ineffective. My second semester, there was a guy came down there that was, uh, came back to school that had been with the navigators. He came by my dorm room one night, about oh, 11, 11.30, and we went out and sat out on the front steps of the dorms, and I had all kind of questions, and he answered my questions quoting the Bible. And I'd say, well, Bill, how about this? And he would quote the Bible and answer, and another verse, and another verse. And I'd say, yeah, but Bill, what about, and he would quote the Bible and answer my questions over and over and over. And I said, man, I, I, I'm impressed. So you know what? I, I started memorizing scripture. He taught me how to have a quiet time. He showed me how to have, a, he helped me personally how to have a quiet time. I'd get up every morning. I'd get to bed about midnight. I'd get up every morning at 6 o'clock. I'd, uh, and I'd, I'd memorize a verse. I'd, I'd write my verse out the night before. I'd put it on the mirror in my room. And I'd get up the next morning. And as I was shaving, brushing my teeth, getting all that, getting that, that, that done, I would work on memorizing that verse. Then I'd sit down at my desk and I'd read my Bible and pray for 30 minutes every morning, never missed. Then I'd walk to the dining hall and I'd finish memorizing that verse that I'd started. And if I didn't have it by the time I got there, I got it on the way back. And so I started memorizing scripture. It got me into a Bible study. Taught me how to share my faith. She had me, had me uh, give my testimony. Made me write it out word for word. And then learn to give it in three minutes or less. So that you could always share your testimony with people in three minutes or less. I, I began to get help. I began to, and, my, and my Christian life just blossomed. Man, this is wonderful. I was walking across the campus one day just, just happy as a lark. Thinking, you know. And I asked myself, you know, why, why, why are you so happy? And I think, you know what? I have gotten plugged into God. That's what's happened. I got, I've gotten plugged into God, and, and it's just real to me. The Bible is real. Jesus is real. God is real. Well, I, uh, I memorized, uh, you know, we had, you had to memorize three verses a day to be a part of the team. Three verses a week, excuse me memorize three verses a week and so I started memorizing three verses a week and I thought well if you memorize three you can memorize four and so I thought well why don't you just memorize one every day and so we did just memorize a verse every day and I would go months and months and months and never miss a day memorizing a verse of scripture I graduated those last two years probably I don't know 600 700 verses on my heart and, you know, I, I left A&M, and uh, the Vietnam War was starting up, and uh, the troops had not landed yet. Johnson had not ordered the, the uh, Marines into Da Nang. The 3rd Marine Division on the island of Okinawa was ordered in in April 1965 to land on just north of Da Nang. They hadn't done that yet. But I knew it, but the military was drafting everybody, and so I joined the Marine Corps. And, you know, I, I went through boot camp, and... Uh, and people noticed the difference in my life. People would come up to me in boot camp and ask me about my faith. Because I had a different life. You know, I went to Vietnam as a recon platoon commander. I graduated number one in my platoon. I had the best, the best physical scores. I had the best uh, on the three-mile run. I did very well. And I, so when I got to the Fleet Marine Force, Camp Pendleton, California, they assigned me to recon. And recon was the outfit that went behind the enemy lines in small units and did spying in, in, uh, on the enemy, hopefully without being detected. And they assigned me to that outfit. So when I went to Vietnam as a reconnaissance platoon commander, 
with 17 other men, 18 of us in my little team, then we got into some really scrapes. You know that I counted up one time, 73% of my platoon was shot up at one time or another. We were in that much combat. Nobody got killed. But I've, uh, I remember I got, I got wounded in the stomach. I took a gr grenade fragment <coughs> in the stomach uh, on one of the battles that we were having. You know, just Viet Cong everywhere. And we, uh, I had some men severely wounded. I mean, you've seen these pictures of taking these soldiers or Marines or just gauze, bandages, just blood everywhere and loading them aboard these uh, <coughs> medevac helicopters. And I've, I've done that with my own men. Uh, but, you know, during that time, people, we'd set into the jungles at night in the thickest jungle we could get in to hide ourselves and men would kind of saddle up to me and they'd want to know about life. What are we doing here? And, and what about war? And what's, what's all, where's God? And how do I understand all that? And you know what I could do? The same thing that Bill did with me. I quoted Bible verses and helped them understand life and the world and people and politics and government. I could help them understand because I quoted the Word of God. I had it on my heart. That... Uh, I uh, came back and uh, and my wife and I I uh, prayed about shipping over and staying in the Marines and I, I just I, with a small I, my little girl was born uh, she was eight months old when I got home first time I saw her and my wife got uh, pregnant again just before my time to ship over and I thought you know I can't do this to my family I can't do this so I went ahead and got out of the Marines and that's when I moved to Colorado Springs and got tied in with the Navigators. That's where I'm coming from. I'm just a layman. Uh, it's, Leroy told me one day, he said, Chuck, the Christian life is real simple. Read the Bible and do it. So that's where I'm coming from. Read the Bible and do it. So uh, I, uh, I meet with an accountability group in Frisco, Texas, where I live. One guy is a uh, real estate agent. Uh, Cliff is a structural engineer, very sharp guy. Uh, Paul is a do medical doctor. Mike Ray is, a, an, is, is an attorney, corporate attorney. Uh, PJ is a, uh, is a tech chief. He, he, he runs, he develops programs for in, in the tech industry, very sharp guy. Randall is a, uh, he's a home builder. He builds custom homes quality work and we meet together we meet together once a week Wednesday morning at 630 and hold each other accountable one of the mornings we were just we were talking and uh, I think Randall asked the question he's you know we started talking about success Joshua 1 8 this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth but you shall meditate therein day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And they ask the question, what is success? What is the success in the Christian life? I mean, as God will look down and evaluate your life, what would God have to see to say that is a successful life? What would it look like to God? 
And so we talked about that and debated about it. Well, when we broke up that morning and left, that was about 6.30. On my way back to the office I, in my pickup, and I pulled up my famous yellow tablet. I always keep a yellow pad in my pickup. And I put it on my console, and I began just to jot down notes. And finally, I just pulled over, and I began to write things. And what I want to share this weekend is basically the results of what we think is the successful Christian life looks like in the eyes of God. So that's what we want to talk about. We made, uh, <clears throat> we're going to try to make this, uh, this work. <clears throat> if this doesn't work, uh, Remington will be stoned at noon. <clears throat> we're, going to, we're going to drag him out and stone him. Because when I showed up, it was working. And then Remington got a hold of it. And, but but you, make, uh, you make wise decisions. You need to make wise decisions in three areas of your life. You submit to God, the first thing. And by the way, well, well I'll get to You submit to God all that you are as your absolute Lord. You love other people. And number three, you work at what you enjoy and you're good at. Now, what we said here, everybody has got to deal with these issues. What are you going to do with God? Everybody deals with that. I don't care if you're an atheist. You have dealt with the God question. Everybody deals with the God question. I have a brother who get, couldn't give a wit about God. But he's got a plan as to how he's got God satisfied. He came up with this plan as to how he's going to pacify God and keep God in, in, in good shape. It has nothing to do with the Bible. It's his plan. Of course, he can change it any time he wants to also. But everybody deals with the God question. What are we going to do with God? Number two is what are you going to do with people? You go to work and there's people. You go to class and there's people. You go back to your dorm, there's people. You go to, 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 get to a restaurant, there's people. What are you going to do? How are you going to deal with people? And the third thing is what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do with your life? What, what does your 40 hours look like? Your 168 hours a week. What does it look like? What do you do with yourself? You've got to deal with that question. You've got to deal with three issues. So, and then if we have time, there's another part, and that is, how do you get there? And that is, I've, I've met a lot of people that tell me, Chuck, I, I, I kind of have an idea of what God wants me to be. I just can't get there. I know what God would have me to be, and I know that I'm supposed to be reading my Bible, and I'm supposed to be a godly man. I'm supposed to know the Word. I'm supposed to be a witness. I just can't get it all together. How do you get there? And if we have time, then we will uh, we'll work on that. That's number four. But how do you get there? Now, this is, uh, this is the prayer that I've been praying for this week. And I've prayed this many times, but 1 Kings 18, 36 and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, O oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, that you're God, and that I am thy servant. And I've done all these things at your word. And so the thing that I have prayed is that God would be manifested as God in Israel and that I would be recognized as just a servant who's simply doing what he's told me to do. And that's what I prayed for the weekend. The, uh, <clears throat> the Christian life, Paul pr primarily, in the book of Psalms, the word 
path is concerned, is used to describe, show me thy ways, O Lord, show, teach me thy paths. Uh, the word path is used a lot in the Psalms to describe the Christian life. But in the New Testament, Paul tends to use the word race. Know ye not that they which run in a race all run, but one receiveth the prize. So run that you may obtain. That's 1 Corinthians 9.24. Uh, Hebrews 11.1 1 is another one. Oops. That wherefore, seeing we are encompassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us, sidetracks us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Here again, the writer of the book of Hebrews uses the analogy that we're, our life is a race. Now let me just uh, cover a couple of things about what a race is. Every stadium, by the way, has two parts. There's stands are for the spectators, and the field is for the players. We're all players, because the spectators are all dead. Wherefore, seeing we are encompassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, all the, all the spectators in the sand are people that have lived before us. They're spectators. But the people that are alive today are down on the field in their race. They may be doing a good job of it. They may be doing a poor job, but they're in the race. All the dead people are in the stands watching us. Your race has been predetermined. This is an amazing thing, and this is what I want you to get, get this. You never chose who your parents would be. You didn't choose your genes, your chromosomes. You didn't choose your brothers, your sisters, your ethnicity. You didn't choose the town you were born in, the state, even the country that you were born in. You didn't choose that. You didn't choose who your mom would be, who your dad would be, what their occupation would be, what their standard of living would be, what your social status would be. You chose none of that. I was all chosen for you. The values that your family espoused, the way you were raised, your strengths, your weaknesses, your temperament, your personality, your propensities, you didn't choose any of that. Who did? Who made you exactly who you are? Who did that? My son has twin boys. They were born 50 seconds apart. They are totally different. They are totally different. The first, the first one's name is Cash. And the reason they named it that because they, uh, my, my daughter, my, uh, my uh, daughter-in-law had, had such trouble. She was almost 40 years old. She couldn't get pregnant. And so, man, they tried in, in vitro fertilization. They tried everything in the world over and over again. They spent thousands of dollars, thousands. Of, and they spent so much money when this kid was finally born, they named him Cash. I'm serious as a heart attack. <laughs> they named him Cash. But they had spent so much money, we finally got here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remind myself every day. <laughs> but you did not choose any of these critical parts of you. This thing is not, oh. Who did? God did. And I want you to understand that God, when you were in your mom's womb, put you together cell by cell, bone by bone, muscle by muscle, and made you exactly who he wanted. Because he has got a life for you that he wants you to live, and he built you completely perfect to live that life in a perfect way. So that you run your ways, you race a winner. And he developed you 
to, to run the race that he has planned for you as a winner. And he made you exactly like he wanted you. You know, I think it was the Apostle Paul. In, in, I'm memorizing the, the book of Galatians, I'm about midway chapter 4. But in Galatians 1.15, but when he, Apostle Paul giving his testimony, but when he, God, but when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and, call, and called me to, to reveal his grace in me, that I should preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace to reveal his will to the Gentiles. And Paul says, you know, God called me to be his apostle to the Gentiles before I was ever put together. And he built me. And he gave me a mindset and a personality and a drive and a brain and a capability and a personality to exactly do what he called me to do, which was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he did that in my mother's womb. And Paul says, I was called to this mission before I was ever born. And so are you. God has put you together for a purpose. And you are perfectly put together. He didn't make a mistake, and he wants to live through you his perfect plan to his glory. And it's important that you, need, that, that you recognize. And you know, so you think, well, when did Paul find out he was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles? Well, it's when he was on the Damascus Road. No, no, that's just when God told him. But God built him for that, in his, for that job in his mother's room. Um, it's not a speed race. It's an endurance race. Now, here's one other thing and I want you to get. The preparation for the race is your responsibility. You know what it says? Lay aside every weight. That's your job. Uh, another one is the sin that so easily sets you the sidetracks you. That's your job. Get rid of it. And the fact, if you're going to be successful in running the race that God has designed for you, the life that he has planned for you and equipped you and built you for, if you're going to be successful, you've got to get rid of the junk in your life. That's your job. And as, as a... Let me give you a verse over in Mark. And I'll, let me just quote it. The sower sows, sows the word. And these are they that are sown on stony ground. You know the passage. Who, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with joy, but have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Why don't they have any root? Because the stones. They're, they can't go deep with God because they've got these stones in their life. They can't grow and develop because they've got all these stones that are hindering that. And what it says in Hebrews is get rid of them. Get the stones out of your life. Get rid of the things that are hindering you from growing and developing into the person of God that God has planned for you. Get that junk out of your life. And these are they that are sown among thorns, such as hear the word and the cares of this word and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust for other things. Enter in, it just chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful. And God says, get rid of that. The things that are choking the very life out of you that you're hanging on to, get rid of that. That's your job. Now, How do you successfully run the race that is set before us? 
And the first thing is God is the absolute Lord of your life. Now, let me just stop at this point. Has anybody got a question about any of this that we've covered so far? Anybody got a question? That God, the main point <clears throat> is that God built you cell by cell, bone by bone, marrow by marrow, and made you exactly who he wanted because he has a perfect life he wants to live through you to his glory. And the way you do that is you say, God, here is all that you have made of me. I'm going to give it all back to you. And would you live through me? Your perfect plan for my life for your glory. Now, if you want to be successful, that's what it takes. <clears throat> now, let me, get, let me just get into this a little bit. <clears throat> This verse always bothered me until I finally, uh, you know, meditated on it. And I think the Spirit of God just opened my eyes and I could see it. But it says, <clears throat> and, he summoned, and when he had summoned the multitude unto himself with his disciples, he said to them, if any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now get this, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. You take all that I've given to you. You take all the things that I've done to make you the perfect person that I made you. And you take that and use that for yourself. You will, you will miss life. You will lose life. If you take all that I have given you and go and chase the things of this world, I'm telling you up front, life will not turn out well for you. You will lose your life if you choose to do that. For whosoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whosoever wishes to lose his life for my sake and the gospel, well, that guy saves it. That guy gets life. <clears throat> now, gang, it's, this is over and over and over in the scripture. No one can serve two masters. You can't do it. Either he will hate the one and, 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 uh, he, and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. You cannot pick and you cannot do both. And by the way, most of the businessmen that I meet with don't believe that. They think that they can be a good Christian and be a worldly man, and they can keep it in balance. Got it, brother? No problem? Got it. Not only can you do it, but I'm doing a pretty good job of it. And Satan is up there licking his lips. I got another one. I got another one who bought the lie. And he's licking his lips. <clears throat> now, here's a hard passage. Jesus said, Jesus came to the multitudes. And he says, now listen, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And they go, whoa. Do you know what he's saying? Unless my life becomes your life, it ain't going to work. The only way this is, this is going to work, that you run your, your race successfully, you have a successful life in the eyes of God, is that if my life becomes your life. Now, What we do, and I wrote this down, is that we take all that we are, including all that we hope to be, and, to give it, and we give it to God. Did I have that written up there? Successful living, a life of joy, of purpose and meaning, and it can only be found by taking all that he has made and give it to him and asking him to accomplish his purposes through you. That is the successful life. I hope I can communicate that to you today. Now, let me give you some examples. Like the one guy says, you know, God is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. But let me give you some examples. 
examples of those who did. Look at the Apostle Peter. Now, at this same setting where Jesus said, my life has got to become your life, from that point, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They quit. The crowds left. So he turns to the disciples. He said, you guys going to bail out also? You going to quit on me? Are you going away? Because let me tell you, the standard is not one iota less for you than it is for them. If you're going to be my disciples, the standard is the same. You give up your life, you lose your life for my sake. Are you going away or are you going to stay? And Peter said, makes an amazing comment. Peter says, to whom shall we go? And Peter basically says, I don't understand what you're doing. If you're going to be the Messiah and we're going to reestablish Israel as the, and you know, you're going to bring the glory back to Israel and you're the Messiah King and you're, I don't understand why you're driving the crowds away. Why don't you recruit people? Why aren't you trying to build a crowd? I don't understand what you're doing. But he makes this comment. He said, but to whom shall we go? And Peter says, I've been around the block enough times to know that there is nothing else out there. And I know that, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with you. And gang, let me tell you, I've watched uh, on TV occasionally, you'll see this uh, World Series of Poker. Anybody ever seen that on TV? And you'll see a guy looking at his cards. And he'll look at the, you know, the table and he'll look at the, his cards. And then he'll reach down and do a strange thing. He'll take all of his chips, he'll put his hands around all of his chips, and he'll shove all of his chips out to the center of the table. And he'll say, <coughs> I'm all in. I'm betting everything I've got on this hand. And gang, that's what we have to do. At some point in your life, you're going to have to say, God, I'm betting everything I've got. I'm all in. And I'm betting everything I've got. And I'm giving you my life. How about the Apostle Paul? And Paul made the comment that whatsoever were things were gained to me, those that I have counted as lost to Christ. Yea, Dallas, I count all things but lost for the priceless privilege of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. This, this version says, count them as refuse, rubbish, that I may win Christ. Let me, let me get kind of crude here, uh, and I don't, I don't mean to embarrass anybody, but this is Greek. The word for rubbish there, in the King James, it translates it dung. I do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him. All that I've gained, and let me tell you, the Apostle Paul was a very successful man. Very successful. I mean, he was, his education, his status, his political connections, his religious connections, his religious status. Paul was an extremely accept, uh, successful man. And he says, I, I count it all as nothing more than dung. That I, may, that I may win Christ and be found in Christ. Now the word dung is the word, the Greek word skabolum. It can be transferred, uh, it can be translated as animal waste, human waste. It can be translated as just worthless garbage. It, 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 the word means, but you know it's the word, and here's where I'm going to get crude and I apologize. But the word, it's the word where we get our English word shit. From that word. And if I'm thinking, I read that and I'm thinking to myself, did Paul just say? <laughs> did, did he just say? 
that all that I have gained in the world is nothing more than shit? Did he say that? And that's exactly what he said. And gang, when you go after the things of this world and you start stacking it up, guess what you're gathering? In the eyes of God, you're gathering nothing but a pile of dung. Try it. Go for it. But the Apostle Paul says, everything that I gained, and it was significant, only equates to just a pile of dung out in the barnyard. Again, that's some strong stuff from the Apostle Paul. How about Moses? By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, 40 years old, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Wow. For he was looking to, considering the reproach of Christ, greater treasures, than, greater reward than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses, Moses says, when he had grown up, he refused to be called, he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter, grandson to Pharaoh, the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And he was the grandson, heir apparent to the throne. Can you imagine Moses' lifestyle? He comes in one evening and he says, you know, uh, I've worn this shirt for a day now. Uh, why don't you make me a couple more shirts? I'll just take some of that Egyptian cotton, you know, that long count cotton. And maybe a couple more. I'll, I'll need a, a, maybe a blue one and maybe a maroon one. Maybe a couple of threads here. You know? I just need some more threads. And oh, by the way, tonight, uh, tonight at dinner, I think, you know, uh, why don't you bake me some of that veal cordon bleu? I really kind of like veal cordon bleu. Maybe some sautéed vegetables with that. What, what do you think? Whatever you want, Mr. Moses. Whatever you want, Mr. He said, oh, by the way, why don't you bring me in about six chicks? I, tonight I think I'll take some redheads. Go get me about six of the most gorgeous chicks you can find. Spend the evening with me. Anything you want, Mr. Moses. Any day, every day of his life, anything he wanted, he had it. And Moses says, refuse to be called. He turned that down, choosing rather to endure ill treatment. You know what? I can go out here and be a slave, and it's better life than living in this world that I'm living in every day. And I've got it all. And he traded it, just like, just like Paul did, just like Peter did. Now, gang, there's got to be something to that. When a man like Peter and a man like Paul and a man like Moses, they trade and they had it all. And they traded to be the man that God would have them to be and to follow Christ, regardless of the, the, of the, of the, of the uh, as, as he says, the reproach of Christ, regardless of how tough it is. That is a better life. I'll take that. Now, gang, you're going to be faced with that. Let me, let me give you some illustrations maybe here of some who did not. Let's look at Solomon. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes, I got a quote from T Tony Evans, pastor there in Dallas. He said, Ecclesiastes tells a story, get this, of perhaps the only man ever to have everything the world can offer. He had it all. He had everything the world had to offer. Chariots from Egypt, stallions, building program, palaces, clothes, luxurious clothing, women out the gazoo. He had it all. A thousand women at his beck and call. He had it all. It says that he, he, 
the only man ever to have everything the world can offer, money, wisdom, and pleasure, and he came to the conclusion that those things cannot, not that they don't, they cannot satisfy. They will not give you the life that you're looking for. They will not give you the joy and the happiness that you long for. I don't care how much you got of it. And Solomon, look, Tom Nelson, Tommy Nelson wrote a book. I, I brought, I'm re finishing up this book. It's called A, wife, a Life Well Lived. It's about, it's about uh, Solomon. Here's what he says. If ever there was a man who could find meaning, a meaning in life outside of God, and by the way, that's what it is. You're going to find all the good, good life. You're going to live a great life. God's just not going to have it. God's not going to be dictating the terms to you. You're going to live your own life. And that's what you choose when you turn down God being your absolute Lord. You decide, I'm going to run the show, but I'm going to have just as, high, just as quality of a life. And that's where you deceive yourself. You think, I'm going to have this wonderful life, but I'm going to call, the, I'm going to call you. Hey, listen, I've got a good education. I've got it figured out. I've got a good brain. I've got abilities. I've developed them. I'm going to lead this life that's wonderful. I just don't need God. And that's exactly what Solomon, if ever there was a man who could find meaning outside of God, it was Solomon. In terms of intelligence, industry, and accomplishment, he had it all. And Solomon used these gifts to accumulate wealth, discover knowledge, and experience pleasure. And he didn't do it in moderation, but in excess. If Solomon couldn't discover the secret to life, it can't be done. He had it all in spades and wound up an absolute disaster. Destroyed the kingdom that his father David had established. Destroyed it. An absolute disaster of a life. Let me read you another one. Richard Cohen. I don't know if you know Richard Cohen. I've got, if you want to read you know, the article, I've you know, got a copy of it here. If some of you want to come up and read that later on. But let me give you a few er excerpts from that article. Richard Cohen is a, uh, well, it'll tell a little bit. Of, but most of it, he wrote the, the, the song Hallelujah. Some of you may know it, but Richard Cohen is a very, very famous, let me show you, legendary singer, Songwriter, musician, poet, novelist, perhaps best known for his song, Hallelujah, has more recently had occasion to explore a more monastic life. You know what he did? Here's this guy, world traveler, and he goes to a monastery, and in the cloistered walls of this clammy, cloistered monastery, he sits in a room that's nothing in it but him. And he sits down in this room and sits there in absolute silence for a week trying to find out, trying to find some meaning and purpose in life. Now, read about the guy. I'd come up here in order to write about Leonard Cohen's near silent. This is the author, the, the, the article. I've come up here to write about Leonard Cohen's near silent, anonymous life on the mountain. But for the moment, I lost all sense of where I was. I could hardly believe that this rabbinical-seeming gentleman in wire-rimmed glasses and a wool cap was in truth the singer and poet who had been renowned for 30 years, 30 years, as an international heartthrob, a constant travel, and an Armenian-clad man of the world. Man, he had the threads, a heartthrob of the chicks, world traveler, money, no job. For 30 years he lived in that luxury lifestyle. And now he's sitting in a room with wire-rimmed glasses and a wool cap, silent for a week, desperately trying to... Read this. 
What else would I be doing, he asked. Would I be starting a new marriage with a young woman, raising another family? How about finding new drugs, buying more expensive wines? He said, I don't know. This seems to me, get this, this seems to me the most luxurious and sumptuous response to the emptiness of my own life. He had it all. International heartthrob, Armani-clad suits, he's got it all. And he sits there and testifies that I'm trying to find something to fill the, exist the emptiness of my own existence. And gang, you think you're going to be an exception. You think you're going to be smarter than he is. You think you're going to figure it out, and you're going to, you're going to be able to do it. He just made a few mistakes. We all tell ourselves that. Typically lofty and pitiless words, living on such close terms with silence, clearly hadn't diminished his gift or golden sentence. But get this. But the words carried weight when coming from one who seemed to have tasted all the pleasures that the world has to offer. And he's sitting up in this room. Being in this remote place of stillness had nothing to do with piety or purity, he assured me. It was simply the most practical way he had found of working through the confusion and terror that had long been his bedfellows. That's his testimony. That's the guy that's got all the money and all the threads and all the chicks and all the travel. And his testimony, sitting in an empty room in silence, is that I'm somehow trying to deal with the terror and the emptiness of my own existence. Successful living. I'll say it again. A life of joy, purpose, and meaning. And it can only be found by taking all of you that he has made and giving it to him and asking him to accomplish his purpose through you. <clears throat> Let me read a... I'll read you another one. 10, 10, 10. I'm in Miami, Oklahoma. Now, Miami is nothing to brag about. But I got an aunt who lives there. We go see her. Every Saturday morning, we go down to... We go downtown, it's only a block, and uh, there's a little cafe, and everybody in there knows everybody, so you walk in, and you sit down, and you, there is no menu, you just tell them what you want, and they fix it, and, uh, but next door, there's a little bookstore, a little cute little bookstore, and they only have about one or two books of each, of each title, but I walked in there, we always go to the, have breakfast, then we go to the bookstore, and we browse the bookstore, I love that. I love looking at bookstores. And I find this book, 10, 10, 10, about how to make decisions. So I thought, that sounds pretty interesting. Thumb through it, bought it. Susie Welch, second wife to Jack Welch, who was the CEO of General Electric. Now, I don't know if you're in a business uh, setting or in a business major, you know that Jack Welch was the man. I mean, he took General Electric from, from a very meager uh, company and just exploded the thing. And I mean, General Electric became a humongous company. And he, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, along the way, he became kind of the expert as to how to run a company. Famous guy. Made tons of money, accolades, admiration, the guru who goes around and telling everybody else how to run their companies. I mean, he was it. And so he marries this young gal, divorced his other wife, and marries this young chick as his, what the business world calls your trophy wife. So then Susie writes a book. And in this book, she says, three years ago, Jack and I attended a beautiful New Year, New Year Eve party. This is in Long Island, New York. Can you imagine the guest list? The host home was decorated with dozens of twinkling lanterns, 
Waiters squished about topping off glasses. Jazz band filled the air with sparkling music. About 10 p.m., a little bell tinkled for dinner, and we were swept into the grand tent, lit by candeloppers and festooned with flowers. If there was ever a moment to think, ain't life grand, it had arrived. Now, this is a beautiful, beautiful backyard in a mansion on Long Island with some of the top executives in the world there. But then a strange thing happened. As soon as we sat down with our friends, there was eight of us at our table, instead of ooing and aahing, one couple hushed us. It's crazy, I'm telling you. We've been trying to make a list since last week. And we can't come up with a dozen people who are happy. She grabbed a piece of notebook paper out of her shiny evening purse and held it up for all of us to see. It was indeed a list of names, all but two or three scribbled out. We've been dying to see you guys tonight because we can't believe this, her husband added. Can any of you name a dozen people who qualify? As happy? Yeah. Can you name a dozen people? I dare you. Name a dozen people who you know are happy. Name 12 people who are actually living the life that they want. Name them. And so there's eight sitting at the table. So he said, at her invitation, each couple kind of entered into a sidebar conference, and they began to come up with their list. Jack and my list came quickly, but just as quickly, we crossed off the names for one reason or another. None of their friends, they would testify, were happy. Then, well, he said, this guy says, well, people, I know this will come as a shock to you, but please scratch me off your list. He said, I'm not happy. I can't be. I'm Irish. Ha, ha, ha. And they all laughed. But get this, we burst into laughter, but no one disagreed with him. The speaker was a wonderful person, funny, smart, and dear, but a truly cranky pants committed to the notion that life is nasty, brutish, and sort, and they crossed him off the list. Two other couples threw out a few names for consideration, but most were dismissed. Too bitter. Hates his wife. Trying to live the picture. In the middle of all this, soup was served, but no one noticed. We were engrossed, stymied by the ta task of compiling our happy list. Most of us were able to summon a name or two, but one friend, get this, one friend volunteered a yoga teacher she knew who lived with her funky artist husband in a converted barn on their parents' estate north of Boston. But the others just laughed at it. So you got this yoga, we're trying to find happy people. I know this yoga teacher who lives with her funky husband on the back in a barn on her parents. Forget it. <laughs> but others, uh, see, another guest picked himself for the list. But his wife interjected, when was the last time you could sleep through the night with the help of your, without the help of your little white pills? And so, and, and, and so it went for another, yet another half an hour, each couple struggling to come up with a list of a dozen certifiably contented people. Candidates didn't need to be without battle wounds. They didn't even need to be successful, but they just needed to be at peace. By the end of the evening, we'd come up with a few names. And one of the people says, What a disturbing piece of data, one of our friends said. And incongruously, 
they all they got up to the dance floor and started the dance floor started to be filled with happy looking people they quit working the list and they just got up and made out like they were happy and started dancing and gang, that is the most successful people that New York has. The most successful people that the financial empire can produce. And they can't come up with ten people that they say are living a contented life. They can't do it. And these are the winners. These are not the people that failed to climb the mountain. These are the people that made it to the top. And they get up there and their life is void and empty, just like Leonard Cohen. Again, don't get sucked into that. I'm telling you that God made you in your mother's womb for a purpose, and He wants to live His life through you to give you joy and peace and purpose and meaning and significance. And you can say, well, thanks, God, for all the gifts. I think I'll run my own show and wind up being just as empty as these people. And I'm begging you, don't do that. Don't do that. I had a, one of the guys in our accountability group, Mike, the attorney, <clears throat> he, uh, he called me one night, and he said, Chuck, I want you to pray for my father-in-law. I said, okay. I, kn I knew the father-in-law. Knew, I know, know Mike and his wife real well, two, two little kids. I said, okay. I said, what's the deal? He said, well, Chuck, he's just getting into all kind of crazy stuff. Uh, I don't know. He's, he's, you know he's, he's getting older, and he's retired, and he. But now he's, he's joined a group of men who, and they're going to these meetings and they're coming up with this philosophy of all these things they need to be doing. And, and it's, and it's kind of, but they're promising, the promise is that it will rejuvenate their energy and, their, uh, and it'll just kind of make them a new man. And he, and he says, Chuck, it's crazy. So I, uh, Neil, do we have a whiteboard? So I, I call, I, I, uh, I said, well, Mike, I, I know your father-in-law. I'll, I'll pray for him. I really will. And so then I called him back. Oh, maybe a couple hours later. I said, Mike, can I come over to your home tomorrow night and show you something? And he said, man, love to, love to. So I went over to his home the next night. And he was, Mike was there and his wife, Alina, was there and his mother-in-law. And the dad was off to one of, her, one of his meetings. But I sat there and I said, let me see if I can draw for you what, uh, what I think he's going through. And I drew, a, I drew a line, and I, I don't know if we'll get the whiteboard up here in time or not, but <clears throat> I drew two lines on, on, the, on the table as we sat there at the table. And uh, <clears throat> ta-da. Yeah, yeah, no. Sorry about that. Yay, Neil. <laughs> I, I will get this thing fixed. Okay, give me a Let's see now. What color will I... This looks like something my, grand, my grandkids would have here. They got every color in the world except the right one. You know, they, they never have the right one. <laughs> I knew you were good for something. Uh, okay, but here's what I said. Mike, let me show you, let me show you, let me show you something. So I drew, a, I drew a graft, and I hope you can see this okay. Let me, get, let me see if I got one a little better. But I drew a graph. Oh, no, that's not any. <laughs> okay, but anyway, I, 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 
Okay, here's what. Here's what. Here's what I told him. You got one? Oh, thank you. Yeah, yay. Yeah. And I said, Mike, let me show you something and tell me whether or not this fits. Um, a, man, a man starts out and he has certain aspirations and dreams and uh, responsibilities and things he needs to do and accomplish in his life, some uh, mandatory and some uh, by choice. He's got his kids to raise. He's got to put them in college. But he's got a job. He wants to make money. And then he's got dreams like maybe a second home or maybe something down by the beach or maybe up in the mountains and, and a certain car or maybe a boat. But he's got all these dreams and aspirations. And what happens is a man, you know, he's just kind of got these dreams and aspirations of things he wants to do with his life, things he wants to accomplish with his life. And he has certain abilities. He, he goes to college and he gets an education. He has certain abilities. But then his abilities start to wane and he gets, and, they, and then all of a sudden he's dead. That's his life. So this, these are his responsibilities and his aspirations. And these are his capabilities. And as a man gets older, he loses his capabilities. Ask me about it. I can't do things I used to, to do. I can't. I mean, there's a lot of things I can't do. There's a lot of things my wife can't do. We're both in our 70s. We don't have the capability that we once have. And as a man gets older, he begins to lose his capabilities. Right now, he's, he's, he's 30, he's 40, he's working, he's going to seminars, he's continuing getting CE credits or educational credits, and he's growing, and he's, and he's, he's achieving his objectives and his, and his capabilities. But after a while, he begins to lose his capability. He, he can't do it anymore. He gets, all of a sudden, he can't hear as well. And it hurts when he gets out of bed. And he can't see as good. And he begins to lose that. And when, and when those two lines cross between his dreams and aspirations and his capabilities of doing it, it's what science, a sociologist call the midlife crisis. And he panics because he knows. He can see what he wants to accomplish, and he knows he can't do it. He's not able to reach it anymore. He's losing it. And the bigger this gets, the wider this gets, the more angst he, the more angst he becomes a part of his life. The, 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 the threat, the, the fear that I'm, I'm not going to be able to pull it off. I've I got to work harder. I've got to do more. I've got to change some things. And so he starts doing crazy stuff. He divorces his wife. Goes down, it's her fault. And he goes down and begins to hang out with the chicks. Just show them, you know, that he's still viral. He's still got it. Maybe he buys a big day, opens up his shirt. He goes and buys him a motorcycle. He gives him a big Harley. Hey, look at me. And he's still trying to prove to the world that he's got it. All knowing that he's losing it. He knows that. And the more and more angst and anxiety becomes a part of his life. And he does stupid things. Stupid stuff. Goes down and bores a, buys a Corvette convertible. <laughs> and he looks like an idiot driving it down the road. <laughs> he does. And the more this happens. And so I showed that to Mike and Alina and his mother-in-law. And I says, is that where your father-in-law is? And, and his wife sat there with just a sadness. And she said, that's exactly where he is. Now, gang, this is going to happen in your life. Right now, you're young and you're viral. And guess what? All the parts are working. You don't have aching knees like I do. 
You don't have a back that when you go out and work pretty hard, your back hurts you for a day. You don't have that. All your parts are working. But I guarantee you, it's coming. I guarantee it's coming. And the thing is, what are you, have you taken all that God has given you? Says God, you know why I don't have anxiety? I had a Hindu lady that I've shared Christ with a number of times. Y'all can sit down and think. But I have a Hindu lady I shared Christ with a number of times. I showed up one day at the college. She's a professor. And I said, uh, and we were sitting there talking. And I'm very upfront with her about Christ. Quote a lot of verses, share the gospel. And she said, she stopped me. She said, you know, I don't understand something. She said, you seem to be at peace, and I'm not. Now, why, are you ha- why do you have peace, and I don't? And so I said, well, Anima, uh, my God is sovereign. He rules everything. There is nothing outside of his limits. And not only that, my God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything about me, and he can change anything in a heartbeat. But not only that, he loves me. And Anima, my God, only does those things that are in my best interest, always, because he loves me. And Anima, I can have peace because my God knows exactly where I am. He, he can change anything he needs to, and he always does that, which is in my best interest. And Anima, because I know that, I can take circumstances, and I live in peace. I know that anima. And she couldn't, she couldn't, she, she kind of philosophically debates that, but that's as close as she could go. You know, I was at um, first campus ministry that my wife and I went out on our own, kind of like Neil and Melinda went to USC. My, my wife and I went to U- U- University of California, Irvine. Showed up, didn't know a soul. In town, on the campus, nowhere. Rented a little house, and I began to go out to the campus well, one of my tricks, you got to have tricks, but one of my tricks was that I'd go out, I'd take my sack lunch, and I'd go in the student center, and I'd set it down at noontime, and I'd set it down on one of the tables, and then I'd go to get me a fountain drink. And then when I came back, whoever was sitting at the table, I'd sit down because there was my place, and it was very natural, and I could just share Christ with them. Very natural deal. It wasn't like I just walked up to somebody and interrupted so one day I walked in there and I set my little sack lunch down in my books and I went to get me a fountain drink and I came back and sitting across the table from me were two of the most gorgeous chicks you have ever laid eyes on. Gorgeous Southern California, long hair, beautiful chicks. I'm saying to myself, Chuck, get your sack lunch and go someplace else. <laughs> and I thought to myself, so I started and I thought, wait a minute. You prayed and asked God to bring some people that you could talk to. And there they are. So I said, okay. And I sat down. And I, talk, I started talking. I said, you know what? Uh, I'd really like to ask people, what's your goal in life? What's your purpose in life? What, 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 what are you really after? So they kind of looked at each other and giggled and kind of laughed. And, and so we began to talk. And as they would talk, I would summarize or try to, you know, capsulize what they were saying. And, and, one, and they finally said... Uh, they, as we talked for a little while, I finally said, you know what it seems to me that you're saying is that what you really want out of life is that you want to be happy. I mean, bottom line, if you could just draw it out, what you're really saying that you want is that you want to be happy. Is that right? And they said, yeah, they kind of laughed. Yeah, that's it. We, we like to be happy. So I said, well, that's interesting. How are you going to get there? What do you think are the ingredients to being happy? What will make you happy? What, what, what's the key? So they kind of giggled and started talking more, some more and 
And, and I would listen and summarize things. And finally, uh, we came up with three things. And that is, if they could get a good education and make plenty of money. Now, nobody wants to be rich. They just want to have enough. So they have enough money and, they could, and, and married. So it, good education, money, and marriage. So I said, now those three, is that, will that do it? And they said, yeah, that, that'd do it. So I said, well, you know, you live here in Irvine. Uh, uh, do you know any ladies? Let's say they're 35 years of age or older. And they, they got a college degree. But, you know, they're just not happy. You know anybody like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we know. We know some moms. and Yeah, we know, we know some folks like that. I said, well, let me ask you. Do you know anybody, a, a woman, 35 years of age or older, that, you know, they got plenty of dough, plenty of money. But, I mean, it's not doing it. They're not happy. You know anybody like that? Yeah, we know a bunch of people like that. Yeah. I said, well, let me ask you, do you, do you know any lady, 35 or older, who's married, but she is just not happy in that marriage? You know that, you anybody like that? Yeah, we know a bunch of people like that. And so I said to them, I said, so then what's going to make you the lone exception? You know what they said? They looked at each other and said, we don't want to talk about this anymore. And gang, you have a choice. But successful living, a life of joy, purpose, and meaning, and it can only be found by taking all of you he has made and giving it to him and asking him to accomplish his purposes through you. And I have given you examples of those who did and those who did not. But please do not deceive yourself into believing that somehow you will be the lone exception. You won't find them in the Bible and you won't find them in life. You won't find people in, Bi in the Bible that took the things that God gave them and, and tried to live life void of God, tried to run their own show, and it turned out well for them. You won't find them in the Bible, and guess what? You won't find them in life. And don't deceive yourself into believing, think, well, I'll figure it out. I'm going to serve God, and I'm going to be a, a very wealthy businessman, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I got it in balance. I got it in balance. I got it figured out. No, you won't. No, you won't. You do not have to believe this, nor do it. You can have your assets and use them as you choose, but I can promise you that life will not go well for you. You don't tell God to hang it on your beak. You don't jack with God and expect life to turn out well for you. You don't jack with the Word of God and His truth and expect life to turn out well for you. It ain't going to happen. You wind up doing stupid things. Why? Because you took all that you had to do all that you wished, only to become a Leonard Cohen sitting silently in an empty room for a week, desperately trying to fill the emptiness of his own existence. If Solomon could not find it, it's because it's not out there. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in our... You shall find rest for your souls. My burden is, is easy. My yoke is light. Join up with me. Tie up with me. Let's, let's go through life together. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. Come unto me.
And in the tremendous verse, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. That's the invitation. Take what you've got. Give it all to me. Let me lead, let me lead my, my life through you. And I'll guarantee you, I'll guarantee you in writing, I'll put it in writing that you'll have an abundant life. Here's a question. So what are you living for that is so valuable as to give up God living His perfect life through you? What are you going for? What is your aim? That you would give up God living His life from you for that. And then one other thought. If God is said, it is not because of your sin. He's dealt with your sin. He's got a solution for your sin. You know what He doesn't have a solution for? God does not have a solution for you're taking all that He's given you and using it on yourself. He doesn't have a solution for that. And if anything makes Him sad, it is because you're missing out on the life that He had planned for you. He put you together in your womb for a beautiful life, one He calls abundant. And you take it and use it on yourself. And you know what happens? You lose it. Just like the Bible said. And if you don't believe it, you ask those people in New York, you ask Leonard Cohen, or, other, or thousands and thousands just like him that give the, their own testimony to the same thing. So, I had a, I had a guy at uh, A&M. Uh, I went to a Baptist conference and... Uh, his girlfriend came up to me, and she said, would you go visit my boyfriend? I said, sure. Well, he was in the band, the Aggie band. And the Aggie band is so huge that it's divided up into the white band and the maroon band. And so she said, well, sure. So she goes to, uh, I go to see him, and I go to the dorm. Uh, the band was in dorm 11. At A&M, they just numbered the dorms. And uh, they built them all after the war, and they just numbered them. And uh, dorm 11 was where the band was. So I go to the band dorm. And I go up to the fourth floor, and I, and I meet Bobby. And so I go in, and I, we're standing there in the middle of the room, he and his roommate, <clears throat> and I'm sitting there, and I'm talking to him, and I share the gospel, share my testimony with him. And eventually, uh, we go to Glen Area over the spring break, and, and, and I invite Bobby to go, and he goes with us. It, it, was, it was over the spring break, and it was, uh, it was cold. We were in Colorado at Glen Area Castle, and uh, one night, all of us Aggies, there's about 35 or 40 of us, we decided we were going downtown Colorado Springs to, a, to an ice cream place down there that made specialty ice cream uh, concoctions that were just phenomenal. So we're going to all load up and go down to Colorado Springs and get some of these special ice creams. So we get down there, and we're acting like a bunch of fools. You know, we're singing the Aggie songs and all. And, and, uh, and somebody says, hey, where's Bobby? And I thought, you know, I'm responsible for Bobby. And I didn't even know he was, he was missing. Where's Bobby? You know where he was? He had left the meeting that night, and he had taken a walk. There was about a foot of snow on the ground. I mean, it was colder than a mother-in-law's kiss. It was freezing out there. <laughs> so, so Bob, at least a foot of snow on the ground. So what Bobby did is he crawled up on one of, you know those beautiful spruce trees and the, those limbs that hang down? They're just covered with snow. He crawled up under one of those into the dirt at the base of that spruce tree. And Bobby had graduated. He was a pre-med major. Had already been accepted to med school. He was engaged to Ruth Ann. 
And he crawled up under that tree. And he said, God, I've never given you my life. He gave his life to God. And then he said, you know, Lord, in my medical career, love to be a doctor. But if that's not your perfect will for me, I give it to you right now. I surrender it to you right now. And he said, my, uh, my fiance that I love, Ruth Ann, love her to death. But Lord, if you don't want me to marry Ruth Ann, I give her to you right now. And he walked down through the, uh, the assets of his life and surrendered them one by one to God. Bobby, uh, he eventually uh, did go to med school. He and Ruth Ann did get married, had two little kids. And Bobby has had a phenomenal practice and a phenomenal ministry. And so has his wife. Tremendous, tremendous people of God. But when he came to God, he gave him his life and all that he had. And then God lived through Bobby exactly the beautiful plan that he had for him. And it is wonderful. You can't find two happier, more fulfilled people than Bobby and Ruth Ann Ridley. And you could be that. Or you can take your assets and say, God, appreciate the assets. I got a life I want to live. Check with you later. And I can promise you that life will not go well for you. But if you want to live a successful life, according to the Bible and I think according to God, the first thing you need to do is surrender all that you have to Him. That's number one. And when it comes to people, you need to love people. Now, I'm a Marine, and I'm going to be talking about love tonight, but don't let that get out. I mean, um, I, I got a reputation to maintain, so as Marines are talking about loving people, yeah, it just doesn't fit. So don't let that out, but uh, that, that we'll cover that tonight. But how about your surrender? Have you done it? Have you crawled up under that spruce tree? And one by one gave all of your life to God. If you haven't, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss that beautiful life that he has for you. You're going to miss it.